Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, the strand of the Folklore Podcast where we examine books of interest to fans of folklore and chat with their authors. In today's episode, guest reviewer Carly Tremaine is joined by up-and-coming British literary writer Leon Craig to talk about her short story collection, Parallel Hells. In this collection, Leon draws on folklore and gothic horror to explore ideas of queer identity, love, power, and the complicated nature of being human. Made up of 13 stories, we meet a golem, explore a ruined mansion with the ability to grant secret wishes, defy a lethal curse, undertake a satanic mass, and much more. Originally from North London and now living in Berlin, Leon studied English at UCL, medieval literature at Oxford University and creative writing at Birkbeck. She is a member of the LGBTQ plus writing collective The Future is Back and was shortlisted in 2016 for the White Review Short Story Prize. Hey, hello everyone and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. Uh, today we're joined by Leon Craig here to talk about her new book, Parallel Hells, a collection of short gothic horror stories with a twist. Thank you so much for joining us today, Leon. Thank you so much for having me on Folklore. It's a real pleasure. And if you'd like to know a bit more about the book, there are 13, unlucky number, uh, (laughs) stories in the collection. And lots of them deal with queer identity, loneliness, self-discovery, questions about like what it really is to be a human and to have connections with other people and to sometimes feel disconnected from them and several of the stories in the collection are very tied to like ideas and stories from folklore so I'm really excited to be here today. Oh we're so excited to have you here thank you for that that's great um so to begin with I was hoping we could talk a bit about the sort of conception of the collection. Um, I noticed that a lot of the stories were kind of published elsewhere beforehand, but of course they follow a very similar theme. Um, So I was wondering when you got the idea to bring them together into this book. So I started writing them quite a long time ago. I actually, <laughs> um, one of the final stories in the collection is loosely based on Tamlin yes. and I'll get onto that in a moment, but there's that whole theme of the uh, like tithe or teens to hell. And as I was writing acknowledgements, I was like, oh gosh, it's actually taken seven years of my <laughs> life, which is the time span of the teen to write this. Um, so it's been a long time in the making. And the, they started while I was just finishing up a medieval literature master's and I hadn't written anything for four four years because my brain had been like getting like pushed apart in all these different directions by the things that I was learning. And I finally had a bit of breathing room to start writing my own work again. But it was a sort of long journey to actually shape the collection into its final form. And along the way, I was really lucky to kind of submit them to different places and get like quite a bit of editorial feedback from different people. So yeah that some of the stories in earlier incarnations are elsewhere but some of them are only in the book Mm, yeah yeah and um I've seen kind of since this you've actually been compared to the likes of Shelley Jackson and Mariana Enriquez which is incredible 
Um, I was wondering if you could talk us talk us through any particular influences you've had, um, sort of artists or works in particular. Oh, that's such a like fun and thrilling question. Um, one of the major influences on my work, I think, has been Mr. James, mm. who. Yeah always wrote the kind of creepy Christmas story for his Cambridge college and mm-hmm. whose work has a very sort of special place in my heart. Um, one of the stories in the collection, Lick the Dust, is actually features a hand of glory and it's like my lesbian tribute to his work. There's like <laughs> yeah. quite a lot of repressed queerness, I think, in his, in his work too. Um, I think probably my favourite story is by him is casting the runes about these two sorcerers who get into a battle by letter where they're kind of continually trying to kill each other with magic through the post. Yeah, yeah. And there's um, there's a similarity between that and the one you write about the academics. Listen, I thought that when I read it, it was quite linked. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's probably kind of snuck deeper into my brain than I realised. Um, <laughs> another thing that I'm not really sure why the 19th, early 20th century men are coming up so much, but <laughs> also um, Arthur Matchin's The mm-hmm. White People is this sort of tale within a tale about this girl who kind of learns all of these fairy languages and is like incredibly cursed. And I think that was something that kind of really got to me at a formative age as well because Mm -hmm. there's that sense of real kind of fear and nastiness like these aren't your Victorian fairies these are kind of like beings from like from our world but who aren't us and don't necessarily intend us good yeah 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 the classic kind of folk horror fairies um yeah yeah I love that kind of running thread of folk horror through it Uh, that's one thing I particularly adored about the book um, which leads me nicely into the next part, actually. So obviously one of the main things that kind of draws us at the podcast to this collection are the folkloric roots. Um, I was going to say as well, Tam Lin was one of my favourite stories, <laughs> morbidly, as a kid. It horrified me and I couldn't get enough of it. Um, so I was really excited to see that influence in the last one. But alongside that, you have kind of these folkloric elements from so many different cultures and different places around the world, Um, particularly Jewish culture. You know, you've got, for instance, the Golem and the Dybbuk. Um, So I wondered if you could talk us through a bit about these tales, what inspired you about them, or maybe the creatures, what kind of made you draw from them? Of course. Thank you. Um Thank you so much for all, like, all of your appreciation and also the kind of insight that you're bringing to it. As I felt you're a really careful oh. reader. Um, <laughs> the Golem story is sort of in some ways quite traditional because, you know, this is, I mean, in a lot of Golem narratives, the Golem becomes like quite disobedient. Mm. So yeah, we have the key elements of a kind of creature that can't talk that's made out of clay and ashes and Kabbalistic magic. The setting is 18th century kind of Polish-Lithuania and it's set in a shtetl, which is a kind of like Jewish village where you could have some measure of safety, but we're still always under threat from people on the outside of the village who really resented your existence. And my golem is a bit unusual in that they've been created by a woman and I think it 
what really drew me to this was an attraction to the figure of the shapeshifter mm. and how actually the idea of like being something that's pliable and made out of clay has a lot of potential because there's not necessarily a lot of agreement about what golems look like besides you know their kind of core materials yeah. um like for instance the sizes range so i started to wonder you know, what's you know, what are, like what are the limits of this story how can i push it in ways that kind of reveal something about matriarchy or gender or like or identity so my so my golem is disobeying but also sort of discovering themselves through that disobedience yeah yeah and i loved the kind of element of shape-shifting that you brought into that um that really kind of explored that sense that the golem um, didn't really feel that it belonged anywhere and was trying to latch on to these kind of humans around them to get that sense of identity that it didn't fundamentally have. Yeah, it was a really interesting take on it. Um, Were there any kind of particular areas of folklore that drew you the most? Um, So... For instance, you had that element of British folklore. You also had um, sort of the vampires and the succubi um, and various kind of elements from Jewish folklore. Um, would you say there were there was a particular area that... I think it's perhaps like reflective of a like distinctively like Anglo-Jewish experience mm-hmm. in that like I'm bringing in the kind of Eastern European folklore that like my forebears who came over on a boat in the 19th century would have been familiar with yeah. but then there's also the stuff that I've enc- like encountered in my life as someone who lives it who or in that case was living in Britain I now live in Germany but mm. um yeah and I think having grown like grown up in England uh, there's a kind of really like delightful attraction to like fo- to folk horror from these these aisles so for instance you know you go past a pub in east london called the hand of glory and then you get curious and then you discover this like fascinating and horribly morbid idea and even like look at some pictures of the real thing which i don't recommend doing unless you have a strong (laughs) stomach yeah i made that mistake after the mr james story (laughs) oh yeah nasty it doesn't doesn't help you to sleep at night um (laughs) does it oh speaking and speaking of sleep actually Hmm. the uh, the shapeshifter in Hags is a kind of, I think, result of the pandemic because the pandemic completely ruined my ability to sleep normally, and I was having some night terrors. And because I'm that person, ended up kind of googling like incubi and succubi, yeah. and was thinking about how, the, at least as described in like i think it's by saint augustine um like the 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 incubus and the succubus are basically the same being but they take different forms Hmm. when depending whether they're visiting men or women so i was like what is the true form of this creature they're actually kind of indeterminate and i found that really interesting though in the like original kind of classical sources their their encounters with humans are not very consensual Hmm. and I kind of wanted to prod at that more in the story and think about, you know, what if this being 
had developed a bit more empathy over the like hundreds of years they've been they've been on earth and how do they kind of get around that question of like needing to take something from humans but also not being wholly comfortable with the kind of original blueprint blueprint of the demon Mm. yeah yeah and it was a really kind of fascinating take on it um particularly that reminds me of something actually particularly with hags I found that the characters were so kind of well-formed and the world was kind of, I found it really immersive personally. Um, I wondered if that was, if you'd ever considered making that a longer story, maybe a book or maybe like a sort of collection with following the same characters. I just wondered how kind of in-depth you'd gone with those. I think there's probably quite a lot of room in that world, but I think it's the the world of hags actually kind of intrudes into some of the other stories. Like mm-hmm. there are references to the character having met one of the Viking raiders from A Wolf in the Temple. And there's also like a little reference to the kind of magician in Lick the Dust who kind of unwisely summoned Aster and so I think so I think you kind of feel the world of the collection like really opening up when you read it and you and start to realize that they they might all have been like at some one point or another like in the same city so I would be potentially interested in doing something with that world again because that kind of ageless shapeshifter is definitely a preoccupation for me yeah, it's amazing. I'd I'd completely missed those ties before. I'm have to gonna have to go back and read it again. Um, but yeah, I love that. I I did think it was such an immersive kind of world that there was a lot of room there to sort of build more from it. Um, yeah, I love that. I did see recently um, you had done an event for Blackwells up in Manchester um, with Alison Rumfit. Um, who's released her own kind of take on the queer gothic with Tell Me I'm Worthless, which looks fantastic. And then it's brilliant. You should read it. I want to. It's very high on my list. <laughs> and then um, again, in this April coming, uh, I've seen you've got an event with Waterstones down in London um, in conversation with Eliza Clark, who has written boy parts. Um, and something that I feel I've noticed particularly Um, is that there's a real kind of thirst for queer voices like in literature in general but particularly in sort of the subgenres of horror fantasy some romance Um, so I wondered what kind of drew you to use that within horror specifically ah so I think perhaps the like thank you for bringing up those events by the way and I think the pairing Mm. of writers is maybe the best like route into answering that question Okay. Because one of the things that feels really special about, about both Alison and Eliza's writing is that they're unafraid to write very like messy queer heroines. Yeah. So I mean both like Alice and Illa in Tell Me I'm Worthless are coping with like a really traumatic experience in this incredibly haunted house, but neither of them seem to have like have it together even before they went in and you can kind of see the cracks in that relationship and I think one of the things that's really powerful about their connection is that like Alison doesn't sugarcoat the ways that they kind of fail each other and the people around them Mm. and boy parts like 
I like Irina is a straight up sociopath but yeah she's also yeah she's also like revealing something really potent about kind of modernity and queerness and it's also and it's really funny so I think for me kind of couching my queer horror there my queer characters in a horror landscape kind of allows allows me to kind of go bolder like a lot of my narrators are not very pleasant people at all but it means that they kind of out-of-pocket reactions to the things that happen to them can also be a bit bolder in turn Mm, yeah I can completely see that um I yeah I did find a lot of the stories you know you have these kind of so, like some anti-heroes, some just straight up not very pleasant people that you're following, but it does give them a lot of room to kind of make these mistakes that we're scared to kind of face within ourselves. And, you know, it's just it's just refreshing to read from the perspective of someone that's been through these things and are making these mistakes and doing these things um, rather than kind of the sainthood that a lot of a lot of these kind of characters fall into um which yeah yeah which kind of dulls it for me you know I I want them to mess up a bit (laughs) makes it more interesting um so can you think of any kind of other examples of queer horror particularly that have either influenced you in the past or that you're particularly excited about I know we kind of talked about the queer coding and MR James and are there any others kind of similar? Mm, I think within queer writing, I mean, like my lodestar is probably as for a lot of queer writers, like Carmen Marie Machado, because mm. she was sort of melding together like these science fiction motifs and also is really formally inventive, but is very explicitly queer. Another story that is not itself about queerness, but was a very like formative thing to encounter. Was um, Leslie Naneka Arimas, who will greet you when you're at home, which is part of her collection uh, when a man falls from the sky, but it was also in the New Yorker, and it's in this imaginary Nigerian world where you can kind of make a baby out of hair or mud or kind of mm. other like inanimate matter but depending on the kind of intention with which it's made and the quality of the materials it can be really kind of evil and hungry or very sort of sweet and pliable and I think that kind of troubling of like maternity and sort of gender and family norms like in that combination especially with her wonderful writing was something that I found like very stimulating and provocative. Yeah yeah that sounds fantastic um, and I love that kind of melding again of these kind of folkloric superstitions sort of I think they blend really well into horror particularly um, because there's so much there's so much that can kind of go wrong and there's so many kind of horrific stories of um, I don't I don't know sort of within folklore in general <laughs> that kind of go really well into horror and um, particularly with themes of identity and stuff like that Absolutely. I mean, actually, another thing has just um, just come to me now, which I think mm. would be really enjoyable, uh, which would be Kirsty Logan's "Things We Say in the Dark," and that again is sort of like plays lots of really fun games with form, 
you know, it takes you from Iceland to the House of a Victorian medium, and you have this sort of undergo underlying thread of like the Huldu folk, which are these sort of hidden people in Icelandic folklore, and then it's sort of set against this overarching narrative of this lesbian relationship that's crumbling because one of them really wants to have a child and they're mm-hmm. having some trouble some trouble with that. It, I think one of the things that makes folklore and kind of queer horror really exciting combination is that a lot of folklore kind of gets told and told again and it's sort of burnished smooth and it's often quite popular it's not something necessarily that's got like an aristocratic author from the 17th century like often it's quite anonymous um though the though the people who've recorded it vary in like close distinction but then you can kind but then because it's this like sort of anonymous popular form you can then meld it with your own deeply personal experiences and kind of give it like a very distinctive flavor yeah yeah and um sort of for me that is one of the things I find the most exciting about folklore in general the fact that it is these traditional tales that passed on over the years but they can be shifted uh sort of as culture changes and as the perspective general perspective changes and you know they're these kind of really interesting characters and tales that we can and apply into something that resonates with us um and it's really exciting to see that coming out in new literature um it's great to see these tales kind of being shaped into something a bit different um which is what I particularly loved about your collection um I loved seeing these kind of characters and stories that I was familiar with already in this kind of modern environment with these anti-heroes with you know, a bit of sex, a bit of danger and sort of and the queer characters. It's lovely to see these through a queer lens. You know, it's really great that this is having such a resurgence at the minute. Oh, it sounds like it's, um, it's really found a great, like, a great home with you, which makes me really happy. <laughs> and I think it, also one of the things about it that was really rewarding to write is that often when you're of looking for queer literary antecedents because you kind of want to feel less alone you will inevitably read things queerly like mm. for instance with saplings like the, the retelling of tamlin i feel like i've always read it in a queer way but only by putting my own kind of version or retelling of it down on paper did i kind of actually get to what it was about it that feels so queer to me yeah i always kind of did the same thing away from the folklore element, but I always kind of did the same thing with Daphne du Maurier. And, um, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, rooting for those kind of lesbian undertones there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really exciting to kind of take these tropes and meld them into something that resonates. Now I'm just thinking about Mrs Danvers again. <laughs> very raw deal. Yeah, poor Mr Danvers. <laughs> <laughs> justice for mrs danvers <laughs> i'll start the hashtag join it. That's it. um that kind of leads me to my last question really it feels so short but um yeah i'd love to hear kind of what's next for you if you have any other projects in the pipeline that you want to talk to us about oh so at the moment i'm thinking about all of the kind of incredibly creepy late 19th early 20th century housing blocks in the part of Berlin where I live and they have these like very 
dank cellars and the sort of empty attics and all of this like lovely but quite dilapidated molding and kind of thinking and often they kind of face in around a central courtyard so it feels very ghostly especially because a lot of these places would have been kind of absolute havens for the kind of Stasi to spy on like spy on their neighbors so I'm thinking a lot about sort of the ghosts of the eastern part of Berlin and how to kind of weave that into an atmospheric story though I think it needs a little bit more research before <laughs> I can really get going with it. And that's a kind of fun distraction from what I'm supposed to be doing, which is <laughs> working on my novel, The Decadence, which is a, a haunted house story set in Devon. And mm. it's a kind of, it's like a retelling of the country house novel but for a kind of more 21st century audience and it's about a long weekend that goes terribly wrong and then how these consequences like ripple out over a period of like half a decade or more that sounds fantastic i'm very excited about that yeah so thank you so much for joining us today that's been loads of fun i really enjoyed this chat um for any of our listeners if you want to keep up with what Leon's up to you can follow her on Twitter she is on there at Leon that is L-E-O-N underscore C underscore C or you can check out her website www.leoncraigwriter.com thank you again it's been brilliant thank you so much for having me Carly <laughs> um like I just I've thoroughly enjoyed it and you've given me so much like really kind of like juice, like juicy stuff to think about. It's always a pleasure <laughs> to be kind of asked questions about your own work that are su- like that are surprising and that kind of make you turn it on its head again. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's great to kind of hear you talk about these stories and kind of your intent behind them. It makes me want to go back and kind of read them from a different angle. And yeah, thank you again. Yeah, it's been brilliant. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad I could leave in some Easter eggs. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we want. Thanks to Leon for chatting about her book, Parallel Hells, and to Carly for the interview and for reviewing the title. And you can find the review in the book reviews section of the Folklore Podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Parallel Hells was published this year by Scepter Books, an imprint of Hodder and Stoughton. The Folklore Podcast and the Book Club are independent podcasts aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future, alongside other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. Find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can also join our free occasional e-newsletter for more in-depth news. Please tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in our shows to keep to the topics in hand, but of course this does come at a cost. If you want to help us to continue, please visit thefolklorepodcast.com support, where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information on how you can help. Thanks for listening. See you next time.